Pacific, and again at midnight Eastern, here on Book TV, only on C-SPAN 2. Book TV, on C-SPAN 2. Join us for a look at the world of nonfiction books and the publishing industry, Saturday morning at 8 through Monday morning at 8 Eastern. 48 hours of nonfiction books, all weekend, every weekend, on Book TV. John Gatto was a teacher in the New York City public schools for almost three decades. He was named New York Teacher of the Year three times, and in 1991, New York State Teacher of the Year. Next, he talks about the state of public education in the U.S. and his book, A Different Kind of Teacher, Solving the Crisis of American Schooling. It's about an hour and 50 minutes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us tonight as we celebrate guest John Taylor Gatto's new collection of articles, A Different Kind of Teacher, Solving the Crisis of American Schooling. Thomas More has called Gatto a Socrates of the educational world. He has been named New York City Teacher of the Year and New York State Teacher of the Year for outstanding service to our public schools for 30 years. John is also the author of Dumbing Us Down and Underground, The History of American Education. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome John Taylor Gatto. Thank you. I, I, I want to tell you that I had no idea that C-SPAN was going to be here until yesterday. So I sat up for the last two nights trying to write a presentation unsuccessfully, uh, I, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I guess you're all West Siders and not just tourists mm -hmm. passing through town. Uh, let me give you my background. I taught uh, in the schools of the West Side, that's Community School District 3, for 29 years and 8 months. I say 30 years. And in my book, Dumbing Us Down, I say 26 years because the horror of actually counting how many years I had been in the business was too great then. But it was 29 years, 8 months. Are there any teachers here who work in District 3? Not, not in 3. Okay, 3 runs from uh, uh, 60th Street, I believe, uh, and then as a dog leg in Harlem up. I believe, at about 120th Street. And there are 10 to 15,000 kids, depending on the year, uh, held in the 20-odd schools of District 3. So, so I had experience with every aspect of the West Side in that L, the 300,000 people who live there. I began in the flagship school, uh, IS-44 of the district where the sons and daughters of, of the broadcasting elites and professional elites attended. And I concluded in a school on 109th Street, uh, which produced eight of the ten 
uh, muggers of the Central Park jogger some years ago. And the most amazing thing was that from the beginning to the end of that 30 years, even though I saw the widest range of children, and I am not liberal by persuasion, the evidence of my eyes was impossible to overcome that the differences between the kids who were ranked according to mathematical instrumentalities as hopeless and those who were classified as gifted and talented honors was so small that I had much greater success just assuming that there were no differences at all among those kids than following the careful scientific numbers that were set down in the cumulative records. Now, I must confess to having very little success convincing anyone else what the secret of my apparent achievement was that I talked to these kids exactly as I would talk to my own children or to anyone else in the world. I made no allowances whatsoever for their uh, academic background or their race or, or their living conditions or the condition of their family. I just assumed that, like myself, there were people interested in not having their time wasted and the, the great surprise, although it didn't surprise me, but the great surprise, according to pedagogical theory, is that, that it worked unbelievably well. I had some discipline problems, but so few that people would ask me what the secret was. And I would say, well, look, uh, I said, I think why you're having problems is that you talk to each one of your classes a different way, and they know that, and you talk to your colleagues a different way, then you talk to school administrators a different way, and you're producing the kind of shifty behavior that that nobody can, can, can get a, a grounding in. I mean, no one can trust you. So instead they give back what they think they're getting, disrespect. Uh, once again, I, I don't intend to try to convince you that there are no differences and that all of scientific pedagogy, uh, as I've now come to conclude after 10 years of doing nothing other than researching the origins of this bu business, is utter nonsense. That we've built an employment empire out of theories that, can't be tested. Uh, I'll probably refer to this again in the. I have a, 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 a talk prepared for you because that's what I have to inflict on you for, for CNN book notes. But then I'll, I'll, I'll stay as long as you want to talk back and forth and question and answer. Uh, let me tell you an odd thing that happened to me after I left school teaching uh, I sent a resignation to the Wall Street Journal 
I have no idea why to the Wall Street Journal, but that's where I sent it. And I, it was called I Quit, I Think. And on, uh, well, I, 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 because I was really getting along in years, and now I'm deeply into old age, but I was getting along in years, and I didn't know how on earth I was going to pay the rent. Uh, so that was the only hesitation I had. And I, uh, I found, without advance warning, that the journal published that on July 25th, 1991. And I got a call two days later from NASA Goddard Space Center asking me if I could come down and lecture to the engineering colloquium there. And I said, you must have the wrong person. <laughs> all I've ever spoken to all my life are 13-year-olds. <laughs> but a day or two after that, I got a call from the White House asking me if I could come down and speak to the vice president, and then from the Nashville Center of the Arts, and then from the the uh, the controller's annual meeting of the 32 operating divisions of uh, uh, United Technologies Corporation, which made me howl with laughter since everyone in attendance at that eight-hour meeting we had together probably made more in a week than I had made in my entire lifetime. <laughs> Nevertheless, I assumed that this this period of uh, uh, odd uh, encounter with the larger world w would terminate. And so I wasn't particularly spooked by it. I thought, when this is over in a few weeks, uh, uh, I'll go up. I have a farm in upstate New York, not too far from... Ithaca, uh, 128 acres, which oddly enough, though we don't have time, I, I bought as a school project. I was trying to uh, show kids that no matter how little money they had, that America is such a giveaway culture that everything is given away here, including big chunks of land for nothing as long as you don't need the fashionable signals. Uh, and uh, I was challenged to buy such a piece of land and bought it as a classroom project. Uh, anyway, you, you see I'm an Italian and my, my, I wander all over the place. So that was in 1991 that, uh, that these events took place. I assumed they would stop. And now we're in 2001. And I have traveled according to my frequent flyer bank. One and a half million air miles. I've probably driven another 100,000 miles. I've spoken in 50 states and eight foreign countries. Uh, I'll be leaving for Singapore for about a month uh, in two weeks for the third encounter with the Singapore government who made me sign a... Oh, I better be quiet. <laughs> made me sign a contract, just like Apple Computer did, that if I told anybody that this this encounter existed, that they would deny it, and I would have to return the, the fee they were going to pay me. I'm sorry I'm doing this on television. <laughs> That's an Italian for you. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I've, uh, I, I've now appeared before uh, about 800 audiences from every possible background 
from the Hog Farm Commune in Central Tennessee to the John Birch Society to many, many homeschooling groups around the country. And the net upshot of that is that I can report to you as fellow Westsiders that this country may be in trouble, but there's an awful lot of strength at the grassroots, an incredible amount of strength and understanding and and an ability to very shortly pick up the school problem and have it solved outside of uh, expert uh, precincts. What I'm going to read to you from tonight, and I hope it won't sound like reading, uh, I was asked after the Columbine uh, thing to go out twice or three times. My memory really is getting... Uh, and speak to groups in Columbine about what I thought that event meant. Uh, and this uh, this talk is called Beyond Columbine and its Politics of Scientific Management. For that, in effect, is what operates all the government schools in the country and probably half the private schools is a uh, a corpus of pedagogical theory and experience that operates outside your purview, outside the purview of local principals or superintendents, even of state education departments. Uh, educational policy in the United States is made way, way out of sight of anyone that you can reach. And that is done deliberately in order that the managers won't be bothered by your hysteria and mine over what's <laughs> happening to the kids. Okay, so this was what the people of Columbine heard. And my wife was right. I wish I had cleaned my glasses before I start. If you'll allow me to call the mass outpouring of anger and hostility which characterizes our institutions of public schooling, the Columbine phenomenon, and I mean not just instances of carnage and arson, drugs and sexual assaults, but the whole gamut of generalized hostilities which pass before a teacher's eyes, then a great part of the responsibility for our Columbines can be attributed to the infrastructure of schooling itself. We took the wrong road in schooling about a hundred years ago when we made its disciplines forced and we put instruction into the hands of professionalized strangers. I'm sure many of you here are parents and of course all of you have been students at one time or another. How many of you actually knew anything at all about the teachers who preempted your life. How could that possibly be? It has to be the most radical piece of social engineering or one of them in the history of mankind. That you turn your child over to a succession of absolute strangers and you might say, well, the state 
knows who they are, and I'm here to tell you they don't. I began as a, I began as a school teacher. Now I think I'm past the statute of limitations on this. I was an advertising copywriter, and my roommate was a school teacher, and he taught one day and went into the restaurant business. He said, you'd have to be crazy to do that for a living. So uh, in between ad jobs, uh, I took his license that he had pitched into the drawer, and I started to substitute around. Nobody ever bothered to check to find out who I was, was who I said I was. Uh, I'll probably hear from the district attorney, and, and I'll tell him in advance, I'm going to deny saying this. <laughs> There's another fat guy wandering around who look, looks just like me. So, so we took the wrong road in schooling when we put instruction into the hands of professionalized strangers. We piled mistake upon mistake after that, overemphasizing the training that school could deliver, ringing bells in children's ears, extending childhood further and further into the most vigorous part of life, mathematically segregating kids according to the alchemy of standardized test scores, and finally committing the worst mistake of all, yoking the world of work to the world of schooling, forcing a connection which simply does not exist. And when we come to transcend our columbines, it will be because we awaken from this self-induced nightmare and act out of two bedrock principles. One, that nobody can educate you except yourself. Surely our universal individual experiences confirm that one. And two, that over-organization precipitates entropy, the disintegration of order. It's a direct byproduct of overorganization. That's a principle of thermodynamics which translated into everyday life means simply that craziness increases in closed systems shut off from the outside. Washington, D.C. is, of course, a prominent example of this. <laughs> For more years than any of us like to think about, inmates in schools have been shooting each other. Mind you, it is not a recent phenomenon. Since 1990, 267 people have been murdered inside our public schools. Now, for a long time, the press undertook a gentleman's and gentlewoman's agreement to, to be quiet about this. But of the 267 killed, you don't begin to understand the thousands who have been killed from encounters in school, the termination of which takes place outside of the building. Anyway, or committing arson or planting drugs on their teachers. That only happened to me twice. And avoiding the <laughs> common standards of decent behavior in a number of other ways. All in order to express their hatred of these places. As a school teacher, I can tell you, it's almost axiomatic that when you meet a rotten kid on the street after school, he's usually as friendly and polite as anyone else. 
interested in what you're doing? In so-called good schools with no visible disruption, like PS87 nearby, the disintegration of civility takes different forms, but it's there just the same. When American schooling stopped being primarily for mental development and character training, as the man or woman on the street would understand those things, it became a training ground to supply the existing economy with a particular kind of labor and customers that it needed. One buried byproduct of this shift was to sabotage free market principles because by conditioning children to what is instead of what could be, it heavily subsidized existing commerce and social political dispositions. It insulated them against future competition by indoctrinating children in what is and how to succeed with what is. Academic schooling of the past did not do that anywhere near the degree that modern school practice attempts. Another thing that happened to schools is they became large institutional analogs to factories is that the enterprise became a colossal works project, one in which passing out jobs became an end in itself, often jobs with the most tenuous connection to the needs of young people. School is training for work or is training to be a consumer but never an independent producer or to sustain a mandated jobs pyramid. Schooling as any of these things requires tight control to prevent unwanted personal initiative. It requires top-down management. The difficulty here is that education as contrasted with schooling, cries out for self-management. Indeed, it can be argued that the only practical reason to seek education is to achieve this end of becoming a self-manager. And I'm not trying to play word games here. The principle that nobody can educate you except yourself is as old as the hills. You can be trained from outside, but only educated from within. And this is a, a fatal contradiction because one is a memory, a matter of habit and memory, and the other is a matter of learning how to seize the initiative. We have a society drowning in well-schooled people, yet clearly we are starving for educated ones. Mass institutional schooling is compelled to follow a corporate model. There's no choice. But since the product it seeks to produce, at least rhetorically, is an educated man or woman, it runs squarely into the dilemma that there is no known collective way to get there, but rather many individual ways. All of these, however, require a good deal of primary experience, which confinement schooling simply cannot offer. Instead, it must close students off from primary experience, substituting abstract exercises for it. It isn't a secret, nor does one have to be either liberal or conservative, to see that this requirement 
damages education. The paradox is that the particular kinds of damage inflicted, loss of confidence, loss of independence, the development of certain habits and needs which have always characterized weak and dependent people are actually useful to all complex management schemes. As the slightest amount of reflection should show you, would you as a manager wish to have a workforce of strong, independently minded, critically thinking people? Give me a break. <laughs> okay. Uh, even to the most minor management functionaries, this paradox poses a constant temptation. In the setting of institutional schooling, minor functionaries are teachers, assistant principals, principals, and superintendents. Nobody who ever held one of these jobs hasn't been confronted with this paradox that the less the kids know, the easier they are to manage. Notice I didn't say they were easier to teach, but they are indubitably easier to manage. School training is and ought to be, for best results, something like light-duty military training. Religious schools and private schools in general know this, but military training in an all-volunteer army. Nobody should need to be there. Education, on the other hand, is very unlike military training. Think of it as a complex example of what is sometimes called a helix sport. I'll explain what that is in a second, as it was explained to me a year ago, and I fell in love with it. The big difference between so-called non-public education, where individuals with names and identities are fully in charge of their classes, and so-called public schools is that the public variety mimics corporate organization. Public personnel are functions in a system over which they have no effective control, none whatsoever. Just like corporate employees, they follow procedures sent down a rather long ladder of higher rungs from so far away the sender isn't even visible. Long experience with the futility of arguing with this kind of management makes most school teachers either compliant employees or sullen renegades. There's a sullen renegade up here. Only by disregarding the system's mandates can public school personnel do their charges much good in the way of education. But maverick teachers and principals have a way of not lasting very long in the school game. Public schools are always more doctrinaire and less intimate than religious schools, private schools, and of course, home schools. This intimacy difference is decisive. The longer a kid hangs around government schools, the more certain it is that public teachers and administrators come to seem like puppets, unreal, ghost-like masks over a reality that no student really understands. This premonition that something eerie is hiding behind the school routines 
is a correct one, I think. As I said a moment ago, education at its best is a helix sport. Helix sports include wacky exercises like circumnavigating the country on foot or more familiar challenges like gliding or rowing across the Atlantic, sailing alone out of sight of land, cross-country skiing over broken land in the wilderness, anything that pushes the individual to his or her limits without offering precise rules for every contingency. In a helix sport, unlike baseball or chess, the players are indifferent to competition or records. What they search for is a new relationship with themselves, a new relationship with the world. They are willing to endure discipline, even pain and risk, to achieve these goals. And one person's helix sport, like one person's education, is not another's. In a helix sport, the participants do most of the work and take most of the risk. Coaching is only a small part of it. For Think of sailing out of sight of land, which for thousands of years, elite families have seen to it that many of their children, usually sons, but lately both sexes, get to do. Out of sight of land, you're 12 years old, and you're in a sailboat. You don't know where you are. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're in big trouble. And you're in horrible trouble if, if a wind uh, uh, or swells come up. Helix sports are like sticking your six-year-old kid on horseback as was the rule and still is the rule for the British upper classes. If a kid at the age of six can master a semi-wild animal that weighs half a ton, then what would daunt that person later on? And you say, yes, but what if he's thrown and breaks his neck? Well... I, I, I don't ride. I can't tell you what happens in this. Okay. Whatever pushes the individual to his or her limits. Now, learning to play tennis, not from having a racket in your hand, because you can't afford a racket, not from having lessons from a pro, because you can't afford a pro, but learning to play tennis from books and videos is a helix sport. That was exactly how the Williams sisters learned to play tennis. He was a mailman. He couldn't afford tennis camps. He and his wife checked the tennis videos out of the library. They read the little books, you know, with the little stick figures doing this thing. And then that's, those were the kids' coaches. That's Venus and Serena. I would call them millionaires, but they're well into being multimillionaires, each one with a multimillion-dollar home. God bless them. Uh, uh, doing that threatened to upset the entire security of the Williams lower-middle-class world. I mean, what did their friends say? You're doing what? And your daughters are 
playing tennis six hours a day, eight hours a day, ten hours a day as they got older. We only know that it happened at all because the Williams sisters became rich and famous while still teenagers. But it would have been profoundly educational, even if they never made a penny from doing that. Helixing and education both put expertise in perspective because they use expertise only to travel where experts have never been, into regions of personal truth which radically alter the outcomes of your entire life, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Bringing children up smart, strong, brave, independent, compassionate, and loving is certainly a helix sport on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Piaget or Dr. Spock cannot help you much at all. Doing it forces you to realize that no boy or girl on earth is just like any other. If you can't stand to make up a lot of your script as you go along, you are odds-on to blow the assignment. Same thing in school teaching, by the way. But there you don't have much choice. There they don't let you improvise. That's why we call school people pedagogues, which was a term used in ancient Rome to describe a specialized class of slave. Do you think that usage happened by accident? Pedagogues didn't teach anything. They were to ensure that attendance happened and that whatever the master wanted memorized got memorized, not so that the kid could learn anything, because that was the dead giveaway that obedience had been indoctrinated into the kid. You throw things stupid or sensible out to memorize. The ones who memorize it are telling you we are obedient. And then there's this fall-off down to the ones who don't memorize it that we call stupid. But really, what they are are critically rejecting what they've been asked to memorize. If, if anything I'm saying sounds far out, remember that I paid my dues in 30 years or 29 years and 8 months in every secondary school in Community School District 3 as the district fought desperately to get rid of me. <laughs> Especially after my wife got elected to the school board and terminated... 59 no-show jobs up there on 96th Street and elsewhere. Uh, but the paradox kicks in again. Too much growth makes people hard to manage, and the centralized corporate nature of our economy demands well-schooled workers, including professional people, trained in habits of uncritical consumption, not well-educated ones. We don't like to think this way very often, so I'm going to offer you proof that you can provide for yourself. Imagine, for instance, I'll give you about four seconds to do this, what kind of adult a cigarette company or a soda pop company actually needs 
for the corporate enterprise to thrive. That's cigarettes and soda pop. Why would these companies, which are heavily involved in what's called educational reform, why would these companies wish to produce the type of clientele who would reject cigarettes and soda pop? I think you have to believe in the Easter Bunny to believe that they would or that they dispassionately say, here is some money. Isn't it just good business to seek to create the customer you need? Think about Microsoft, which some high-tech analysts believe has set back computer progress a full decade with its grotesquely error-prone Windows system in conjunction with its vastly superior marketing cloud. What kind of customer should Microsoft prefer? A knowledgeable, sophisticated one, or just the opposite? I mean, get real. I'm not trying to figure finger Microsoft as the great villain in our school drama, just trying to get you to acknowledge that the nature of big business is to sell whatever you've got to sell as hard as you can in any legal way that you can. That imperative produces our prosperity. But by just such a mental excursion, you ought to see that business has no business monkeying with education. Because what education aims for is critical thinking as one of its central goals. Independence from consumption addiction for another. High moral standards for a third and so on. And business is an activity aimed at producing profit. Nothing wrong with that in its own sphere. But it means that any sensible business is not likely to want people with strong sales resistance. If you don't believe that, sit in on a marketing seminar at Harvard. But the goal of any sensible education, one of them at least, is to strengthen resistance, to warn the buyer to beware. What exactly, or where exactly, do you see any crossover possibilities between these goals? The finest private school in America, and I mean, in my opinion, bar none, Groton Academy in Massachusetts, has only 340 students, although it could easily attract the children of 10,000 wealthy parents. If profit were its driving motive, if it were looked at solely as a business, what Groton is doing is insane. Why doesn't Groton become a high-class warehouse for rich kids and enrich itself in the process? Why doesn't it franchise out the Groton name and earn hundreds of millions of dollars, 340 kids a year, about 10% of, of whom are on scholarship? Well... The answer to that has to be, although I've never spoken to anyone at Grant, the answer to that has to be that the central purpose of the school is education 
and not business or schooling. For one thing, schools have to create an in-house culture of immaturity and hypocritical competition. That is competition to no proper end. You know and I know that the people who score well on standardized tests and the people who score fairly well and the people who score in a mediocre way and even the people who score poorly have no differences among them. They have no differences among them even in the areas tested. We've known that for about 50 years. The only thing a standardized test score correlates with is the next standardized test. That it does brilliantly. If you score well on one, it'll say you're going to score well on the next, and you and, and you will. You will. Uh, this helps build the road to Columbine, even when the students come from prosperous families, as most do at Columbine. Another drawback of warehouse schooling, as opposed to Groton-type schooling, uh, uh, warehouse schooling is the standard American model since James Bryant Conant, longtime Harvard president, evangelized the form back in the 1950s, is that warehouses deprive children of significant encounters with older people. After a rather short exposure to these incubators, a lot of kids don't even want encounters with older people. Just ask them. I did for 30 years. The culture of immaturity claims them for a long time or almost forever. The visible imperatives of our columbines, like tracking and standardized testing, are such a bald-faced endeavor to create a class society like Britain's. It's no wonder that kids catch on and get mad. School robs them of hope. School is like a sick joke. Doing well in these places does you in as often as it does you good. In the nature of that paradox, school personnel are given no choice but to become liars and to believe their own lies. In the economy that we've fashioned, 40% of the population, these are very recent figures, have absolutely no hope at all. They live from paycheck to paycheck. An additional 50% of the population compete in a dog-eat-dog fashion for 30% of the national wealth. And the remaining wealth is in 10% of the hands, but if you look at the 10%, The top 1% have as much as the next nine. This game has been rigged. Schools must reflect the rigging of the economy. They have no choice. And teachers who say, if you do well here and here and here, the world has a place for you, are bald-faced liars. That isn't true for at least half of the children, no matter what they do. Sorry. Okay, okay. uh, You're the man. I mean, I just saw saw my class. So, 
If high SAT scores are the fairest passage to the rewards of our land, I want you to explain to me how George Bush became president with a mediocre 5-5-0 on the verbal part, which is much, much more important than the than the uh, other part. He graduated from Yale, became a governor, you know, a corporate executive, and now the president. And if you think I'm here to knock George Bush, let me tell you that the grand Democratic intellectual Bill Bradley, whom I'm sure some of you would have liked to vote for but didn't get a chance, became a senator with an embarrassingly low SAT score of 4.80 on the verbal. Bush graduated from Yale with a mediocre score, and Bradley graduated from Princeton with a horrible score. <laughs> one became a governor, the other a senator, and one's now the president. I guess you think Al Gore's an exception. No, he flunked out of college his freshman year, flunking six of the seven courses he took. Why doesn't the New York Times put that in banner headlines on the front cover? If you can be a senator, a governor, a vice president, and a president with this horrible academic record, why can't you be anything else? And in fact, let me step away from this a moment to tell you that the most prestigious scientific project in the world today, probably of this century, the Human Genome Project, is the product of one man, Craig Venter, on the private side, who was an absolute swine, cut school all the time, graduated with a horrible average, just barely graduated, and didn't go to college. He went into the Army and was shipped to Vietnam, not as an officer and a gentleman, but as a private soldier. That's the private side of the Human Genome Project. The public side, Dr. Francis Collins... Didn't go to school at all. He was homeschooled on a sheep farm in western Virginia following no curriculum at all and certainly, as he's testified, certainly not following a scientific or mathematical studies. He and his, his mother did what they wanted to do as long as they were interested in it and as soon as they became bored with it, they did something else. He said in the New York Times about four years ago, I guess no one read this, that if the authorities had known what was going on, you know, he probably would have been in foster care and his mother in the clink. <laughs> That's the Human Genome Project. Now, you couple that with the president, the vice president, the senator, the governor, and tell me that if you were able to look under the rug, that this isn't... This refutation of the value of standardized tests isn't writ large in certain precincts of this society. So why should it control your son or daughter's destiny or your own? School robs children of hope on bogus grounds. Think of hope as the boundary phenomenon separating free men and women from drones, the hopeful from the hopeless. 
My insurance lady and I got to talking about schools once, and she revealed to me that her son, a senior in a fancy public school in a suburb much like Columbine, told her that he didn't want to go back his senior year. I don't want to go, he said. They make me feel like an idiot, an idiot. That's how the shooters at Columbine were made, because they were made to feel like idiots, too. Those boys had everything the rules said made for a good life. Wealthy parents, beautiful homes, every toy they wanted, respectable parents, plenty of pocket money, intelligence, health, agreeable appearance. What they didn't have was hope. School was a minefield in which they were humiliated daily, and they said that often. They said that for several years before they went to the guns. In that dramatic arena of relationships we call school, the least important thing is the zone of ideas and morality. Warehouse schools like Columbine now, they would be appalled to hear me call them warehouse schools because they have every amenity that money can buy. Warehouse schools like Columbine or PS87 are lively theaters of psych... or PS87 are lively theaters of psychodrama. I'm only picking on PS87 because it's considered the elite of the elite on the elite west side. And I happen to know... PS 87, inside out. I worked across the street from it for 20 years. Warehouse schools like Columbine are lively theaters of psychodrama. And the dirty secret of these places is that their adult managers cannot succeed unless they stay on the good side of the right student leaders. Sometimes that's because the kid has a lot of prestige among Contemporary. Sometimes that's because the kid has clout through his or her parents. A typical guidance counselor responds to student complaints of harassment by asking, what are you doing to make them dislike you? Now imagine saying that to a Jew at Dachau, and you'll know how the victims feel in the West Side public schools and all over this nation. What are you doing to make them dislike you? The principal at Columbine appeared on CNN after the massacre and said that a snitch program would have prevented the bloodshed. A snitch program promises to give the growing up time of rich kids some of the flavor of life in a penal colony. I've never heard of a private school worth its salt that wouldn't turn on the snitcher if he or she pressed their tails too vigorously. At the very least, snitchers are shunned everywhere in polite society. Snitching at Columbine joins the already familiar package there of tracking kids as bright or dumb, standardization rituals, constant browbeating and bribes. It should settle once and for all the question of what separates public school from private. It's a matter of trust, an outlook on human nature, a different take on the purpose of going to school. 
Hope is the boundary phenomenon. If the best a boy or girl can hope for is to fit in to a fairly rigid pyramid of predetermined opportunity created by officials and social engineers, then the promise of America that we wouldn't be like the traps of England, Germany, France, or Asian countries is just silliness. If we are just parts of an enormous social machine, if system is dominant and not individuality, we should expect more Columbines as a penalty for revoking the American Charter so profoundly. All the money in the world couldn't buy Klebold and Harris an education. At 17, they reached the end of the line. That's why they killed themselves. Other teenagers kill themselves to get out of the trap, too. What the newspapers didn't bother to tell you is that Littleton, Colorado, an executive suburb, has been a national leader in teenage suicide for at least 30 years. And the American nation wears the same crown in world society. And poor kids don't commit suicide. That's a disease of comfortable families. Klebold and Harris committed suicide, besides murdering some others. What you want to keep in mind when you think about teenage suicide is that it isn't at all a disease of ghettos, but pretty much a habit of prosperous kids who seem to catch on to school laws faster than the poor ones do. Public consideration of a snitch program at Columbine tells you all you need to know about the desperate status of public schooling in America. I can't even conceive of a good private school doing such a thing. The degraded view of human nature it suggests is terrifying. I cannot imagine a single home school in America teaching its children, that brothers and sisters should snitch on one another. It's the moral numbness behind the pragmatism that shocks me. The menace of a police state where every neighbor spies on their fellows and authorities paw over the intimate details of one's life is much more horrifying to me than any school massacre I can think of. In my own life, I attended Jesuit boarding school briefly when I was seven. And there I saw another seven-year-old slapped in the face by the Jesuits for squealing that one of his classmates had two candy bars in violation of the rules. I know there are exceptions to this principle, but we're much better relying on good individual judgment and moral fiber to know when these exceptions occur than systematic snitch programs. Leave those to the police and their customary informants who can be paid to implicate anyone. It marks the difference between having faith in human nature and faith in rules and laws instead. The first allows us dignity. It involves everyone as a central player in the maintenance of order. Think of it as a helix sport, the kind that once allowed villages all over the country to go without any policeman at all. I grew up in such a place and my farm in upstate New York 
is in such a town. No policeman at all. Those who believe hierarchical management can be imposed on education as well as schooling, those who believe that education should be made a reciprocal of the existing economy, those are the school-to-work programs I'm referring to here, do not understand America and do not understand the principle of thermodynamics that teaches that over-organization destroys any real good that organization can achieve. In April of 1994, long before any shooting occurred, Columbine was the site of a revolution in school management in which an eight-year-long experiment in which the faculty, the parents, and the students created the text of the school was overthrown by a new school board. In its place, a new outcomes-based centralized management regime was substituted. Commenting on community outrage in 1994, the president of that new school board was quoted in Education Week as saying, quote, I don't suppose we're going to begin killing each other just because. He really did say that. I didn't make that up. The New York Times failed to dig that out. But they're welcome to it for nothing. No official analysis since Columbine has been willing to think about whether that tragedy was inherent in the logic of remotely managed forced schooling itself, that it might be a system which grossly overextends itself into the lives of the young for the benefit of ensuring the economic and political status quo to make management simpler and easier. Once all major possibilities for the future are contained in a quantitative code set down by the past, a closed system is created contrary to the laws of social thermodynamics. In all history, no closed social system has ever sustained itself forever. All of them are overthrown. They corrupt themselves by cutting off so many people from a voice at the table. All attempts at final closure, at ending history, have disintegrated into violence, as happened in Rome with Commodus and in the Soviet Union just yesterday. In thermodynamics, entropy is the customary term used to describe disorganization. Harris and Klebold disorganized 15 living souls thoroughly and many more severely. They partially disorganized a confident institution and a proud community. But from the look of its surveillance cameras and snitch programs, Columbine doesn't seem to have learned anything. Someone there thinks that an even tighter organization than before will solve the problem. So did the Soviets. Throughout the second half of the 20th century, public schools were deliberately organized as closed systems because that made management more efficient. The real question we're not used to asking is, 
At what point does efficient management rob us of the things that make life worthwhile? You know that point is close at hand when rich kids kill themselves and when most kids would rather sit in front of screens watching virtual reality or punching buttons than going out to play the helix sport of a good life. It's a fantastic irony, a genuine paradox, that the Soviet Union came down in ruins because of its surveillance cameras, its snitches, its police, its identity cards, its metal detectors, its well-schooled, test-savvy elites that could run rings around the graduates of the best schools in the United States. It fell because it had those things, not in spite of them. Every year our own public school system becomes larger and tighter. Every year it demands more and more of the national wealth to weave its web more densely. For the past decade and more, forced schooling has been making aggressive attempts to nationalize itself. In this aim, it has had the aid of big business. Nationalized schooling is the ultimate socialization. It seeks national goals, national teaching licenses, national standardized exams, and a national system of employment rewards for those who play ball in school. In spite of a mountain of evidence, that's what really keeps America the only place people want to migrate to on earth. They perceive that this is the only place that still allows its citizens to argue, to think for themselves. Schools try their best to foreclose that possibility. Just five more minutes. Learning to think and having the courage to think becomes harder and harder thanks to school. The strongest meshes of the net are invisible until a wealthy, well-favored boy like Dylan Klebold in his $3 million home rubs our faces in the reality. School creates a chemistry which produces most of the common characteristics of modern school children. Indifference, dishonesty, boredom, malice, treachery, cruelty, whining, self-pity, boasting, greed, a short attention span. I once saw the student president of Columbine on national TV leading a pep rally before that school reopened. He boasted, we are taking back Columbine. Not a word about the slaughtered and maimed, not a word about grief or remorse, no thoughtful analysis of cause or prescription for prevention, where was the humility that moment called for? Instead, we got a mindless display by the leader of students at Columbine. And what's most important, surely his speech had been pre-screened by the school administration, who found it just fine. Ask if he felt strange about entering the place of execution only 120 days after the killings. He said bluntly that he felt nothing out of the ordinary at all. He was glad to be back in a place he thought of as home, perhaps even more homey than his real home where he lived with his parents. He said that. He did. My skin crawled. 
who wins or loses in the warehouse schools of America has little to do with merit and much to do with the luck of birth and shrewd calculations about how the game of status is really played. The wealth of America is now divided, as I told you in an ad lib earlier, in the following fashion, according to recent reports. 5% of the population owns 59% of the wealth. If that fraction is enlarged to 10%, that 10% owns 70% of the wealth. The bottom 40% of the citizenry owns nothing at all. Actually, it possesses two-tenths of 1% of the wealth, or virtually nothing. The remaining 30% is fought over by 50% of our people. One half of us, that 50%, who call themselves middle class, live in a dog-eat-dog world where a slip or misjudgment is fatal. And 40% more are so far down, they live from day to day with little hope. Something isn't right. This isn't the America I was born into. There are some advantages in being old. Dumbed down, forced schooling of the government variety built this new world, whether accidentally or deliberately, you can draw your own conclusions. Mine are contained in those books over there. The most destructive dynamic in schools like Columbine is the very same thing that causes caged rats to develop eccentric and even violent mannerisms when they press a bar for food, when the delivery mechanism has deliberately been programmed to release food on a random schedule. But the rat knows nothing about that, or that nothing it does can change when the food is coming. The rat cannot know that its activity is irrelevant any more than the millions of children in these school traps know that what they do is irrelevant. The rat can't know, although it surely suspects something must be wrong. It doesn't know what to do beside mindlessly pressing the bar faster or indulging in weird gyrations to placate the food gods. Much weird behavior the kids display in school is a function of the insane and dishonest reinforcement schedule which rewards children for acting against their own best interests for betraying their parents their cultures their religions their local traditions and themselves this along with endless confinement and endless inactivity in ugly and stupefying environments slowly drives children out of their minds trapped children like trapped rats need close professional management. If it's self-management you seek for your own boys and girls, you'll have to leave public school to find it. I wish that weren't true, but it is. Thank you. Now we can talk. <laughs> so I'd be happy to field any, uh, any queries. And there's a mic here. For, so that y y you'll be heard on C-SPAN 2. <laughs> Funny, a friend of mine who's a former student, the guy who who was the director of the New York and Poets Cafe downtown, 
uh, said to me before I, I, I didn't know we were going to be on C-SPAN. And he said, you can't ever hear the questions. I, I said, well, what will I do if they ask me questions that I can't answer? He said, don't worry. He says, you can't ever hear the questions on, on these shows. So he said, you can answer any question. <laughs> <laughs> but now, <laughs> to the magic of electronics, yes, ma'am, there's a question up here in front. Thirty years since you spent thirty years in the public school, knowing what you say you know, yeah. you 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 couldn't have spent thirty years of your life not trying to do something significant. Right. Well. And and so right. for for many of us who are trying to do something significant, yeah. and for the parents who don't know and don't know how to go about having options, what are some significant things that can be done? If one is in a situation where you have to deliver education to children in that environment. You, you know, I'm delighted you asked that question because when I walked into this bookstore this evening, uh, the guy who was there to greet me said to me, uh, I went to Booker T. It was one of the schools I taught in. I went to Booker T. and I knew what was going on. He said, so with my own son, he said... I did things differently at home, even though the kid went to school, he said. And uh, uh, I believe, is that fellow here who I spoke to? Hello. Would you, could, could he have the mic and just tell him where, where your son is? Yes, what I did was um, I applied the principles that he was talking about. And I would always ask my son, I said, what did you learn at school today? And I would see that everything he was telling me was really irrelevant to real life. So I would do some real schooling at home. And he graduated high school at 17. He graduated high school at 17. There's the father. Now, oddly enough, one of the benefits, there's a lot of detractions, but one of the benefits of constantly traveling around the country and talking to, to, to people who've homeschooled their kids, sometimes not by actually taking them out of school, is that the success record is phenomenal, and it does not depend on on prior education or even income of the family. I was just blown away by about the second year. You can, in fact, counteract these poisons as long as you can, in fact, counteract them in school, but it's much harder to do because you have to be, I'm not being melodramatic, a saboteur. You have to break laws. I won the New York State Teacher of the Year Award and several times the New York City Teacher of the Award by breaking the law. Uh, I engaged in criminal behavior. I did not tell the screening committees that. They just looked at the results and thought I had some magic secret. And I had the magic secret that millions of people who know that you provide your own education and someone else can only train you and then only to a limited degree. So my kids wrote an incredible record uh, because they... I, I have to be very careful because I'm not sure about this statute of limitations. Uh, it's actually it's been ten years. That ought, is there a lawyer in the house here? <laughs> uh, I someday intend to write about uh, the freeing mechanisms I, I I use. But I can tell you one way: if you're a teacher yourself, 
if you form a bond with the parents, again, regardless of their economic background or anything, you form a bond with the parents and they believe you want the best for your kids there and they get to co-teach with you you have a blank check there isn't a school in the world that wants to tangle with a group of parents who are irate there so if you clear things with parents first very often local principals will simply look the other way now if you rub their face in it i guess they're compelled to feed you into the the grinder but uh uh, my kids operated as if the textbook with all five boroughs of New York City and Jersey in about 10 miles. And in some instances, one in particular I can remember, as far north as Albany, New York, they were 13 years old. Uh How did they get to go to these places? Not by being in any special program for elite kids but by juggling the dynamics inside the building it was a it was an extremely risky undertaking but by the time i began to do this i had concluded that the job itself was worthless and that i could match the income from the job driving a taxi cab which is a lot of fun to do. I did that. I went to Columbia and uh, drove a cab while I was at Columbia, and I just loved it there. Uh, so you can find ways. I, you can strike bargains with individual teachers. Anyone who has to feed the request through the principal, through the superintendent, you stay away from. You know, just let your kid be sick a lot, you know, when they're going to learn something real. <laughs> There are things you can do. It is not hopeless. But your kid has to understand the responsibility is on them. And if they do everything the school asks, they are in big trouble later on. Yes, sir. Given that it's safe to assume that the mass of people are going to send their kids or continue to send their kids to public education, are there any systemic changes that you think can be done? Why it's incredibly difficult is this. Uh, or, or before the talk started, I, I sort of sketched out in the air this ladder arrangement where no one in the school business that you can see actually has a- any power to alter uh, the structure that's been passed down. I mean, they can do it by winking with one or two kids, or maybe if it's a courageous superintendent, he can wink at his uh his political bosses and get away with one or two things as a sop for a local community that might be activist. But in fact, all these people aren't real people. Maybe out of school they're real people. In school, what you see as a man with a suit or a woman with a dress is a function. They're there to be a relay switch in a in a predestinated organization. They don't have any latitude or wiggle room. I hope you realize that even though I could drip with contempt for these people, the truth is they're human beings too, and their lives, like the lives of teachers, are made incomplete by being inside this system. 
Now, why does this system exist? Because it makes it extremely easy to manage for a very, very few people and a very few. There's a chapter in the large book over there called The Politics of Schooling, in which I trace 24 sources of school orders, none of which are your local school board or or uh, superintendent there. And these are, in a funny way, they're in competition with each other for the hundreds of billions of dollars, much more than the New York Times ever acknowledges. Is spent. This is the largest business in the world, American public school, the largest business by far in the world, much larger than the Defense Department. The only public figures that someone interested ever can get at are what are called the tax levy figures. I know these things because my wife was the treasurer of the local school board. Uh, the the tax levy figures, but there are sources of revenue from all over the place that enter the school business. There's about $11,000 a kid spent in New York City. I mean, if you just put that sum of money for 12 years, you know, on some progressive stock plan, every kid who goes to school would be a millionaire many times. Over. I really mean it. The, what is it, the miracle of compounding, compound interest uh, there? To actually get it to people who can change things is extremely difficult because, first of all, you have to know who they are. And second, once you know who they are, they don't have a clear – this thing has been set up so that they have to pass muster with three or four other interest groups. Now, you say, well, quit being so abstract, John. I'll just name a few of them. I must have spent a year writing that chapter. Uh, the, the textbook publishers, the – the standardized test publishers, you're talking about mega-billion-dollar industries in which are riddled with errors. There isn't a textbook being used in Community School District 3, including math textbooks, that aren't riddled with errors. There, well, could you get up in arms and write to the textbook publisher? Sure, lots of luck. You know, it's Russian roulette whether the errors will be corrected or not. I mean, they're, they're business flourishes by getting rid of the textbook and uh, bringing a, a new one online. I remember a wonderful incident when my wife was the treasurer of the school board up here, and the school board was about to spend $50,000 for a book that I'll bet's in Barnes & Nobles right now. Uh, it was the Harcourt Brace College English Handbook. You know, what's his grammar rules and usage rules and syntax and so it's a standard book that that sells all over the country. And they were and they were they sell for eleven dollars a piece. It seems like a real bargain, doesn't it? The only difficulty was that Barnes and Noble downtown on seventeenth Street was remaindering the last edition, which I mean was word for word except the color of the cover, for a dollar a copy. Now, does that not seem to you a way to instantly save $45,000 that that might find some use in Community School District 3? Well, my wife tried to pass a resolution that we would buy these remaindered books. Uh-uh. Nobody would dare offend the textbook salesman because that could lead to the foreclosure of some pretty cushy school jobs. Similarly, in the 
school cafeterias and I, 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 how, how could you possibly sit still for a school that serves food that's 50% saturated fat on the average? I mean, the bologna business in the United States and the liverwurst business wouldn't exist any longer except, except for schools. And this is a huge part of the American economy. And don't you dare try to tinker with it. School reform, institutional school reform. I'm not saying you can't do wonderful things. Institutional school reform will always come a cropper because all true reform says you're wasting huge amounts of money. Let's take it out of these hands, give it to these hands. We only need half that much money to get the same effects. Yeah. Well, what about the political clubs all over the West Side that are the commonest attendees at school board meetings when there seems to be any risk at all for the contract. And I don't mean to indict the west side of Manhattan. This is universal. This is the biggest business in the United States. In small towns and even small cities, school principals and superintendents and even school teachers are the highest paid people in the community. I mean, they rank right up there with the few doctors and lawyers and architects. You really think that this vast enterprise will allow itself to be tinkered with? What you have to do is cut the river of income flowing in. And then what happens? If you just cut the school budgets 10%, which you think, well, they can tighten their belt, and they could. They could. What would happen is, who are the 10% of people who are going to be dismissed? Not me. And that's what everybody says, not me. So the knives come out, being driven in the backs, the whistleblowers appear. I mean, you the systems are self-reforming if you cut their budgets because the biggest crooks get rid of the smaller crooks in order to say, see, I'm okay, yes. I'm a little. I'm a little more encouraged than I was expecting. More voices from other people asking questions, defending the public system. You, obviously, you don't need many converters here. You're, you're, people came here, and I've, uh, the way I see it, already converted. They already went to school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all share the same experience. We all share the same feelings, um, and we came here to see another insight, obviously, and also. also to hear some answers, and you're saying, well, what well, we can... No one has asked yet except right. this lady, and I said that you can, in fact, <coughs> quite easily, uh, and unfortunately we have, uh, we have some evidence standing there in the back, you can quite easily, simply, if you're a parent, put your own children back on, ta- uh, on track, uh, make them aware that they're going to have to pick and choose inside that school, and they're going to have to bring a an intense critical consciousness to to what's going on so that not that they should be rude or throw bricks but that they can screen out the nonsense uh, they don't become paralyzed about standardized tests uh, but and institutionally I tried to point out is ex- extreme difficulty because you are actually asking for the economy to be recast for huge amounts of money to be moved from one set of hands to another set of hands, even to be returned to the taxpayers that uh, 
that, that fund these places. Look, reading, writing, and arithmetic are so easy to teach. I know you've heard different. When we're talking with reading, and I mean reading at a high degree of proficiency, we're talking for the last 300 years about many, many people saying 30 at contact hours is all you need. Now, does that mean the kid can pick up any book in barn? No. No, what it means is that the kid's proficient enough to continue to progress simply by reading and asking questions. I had a physics professor at Columbia University who now uh, runs a school up in Framingham, Massachusetts called the Sudbury Valley School. See, Dan, you're getting a plug. Uh, tell me that the entire mathematics curriculum, now this guy was a full professor at age 27, so he's a big shot. See that, Dan? Uh, he told me that 25 contact hours will be sufficient to cover the entire math curriculum. And if you want to be highly proficient in the arcane things like calculus and uh, uh, trig and so on, 50 hours. Well, now there's 50 hours for math. There's 30 hours for reading. Uh, what, where's the rest of the 12 years going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So, yes, ma'am. I could clearly see from your um, essay what you feel about uh, public schools um, and and parochial schools and private schools, but I was um, curious how you feel about the charter school movement. Uh, it's very sad to hear myself say that I'm not optimistic, even though I'm on the board of five different charter schools around the country, and I've probably visited 30 of them, and I've been impressed by all of them that I've seen. Here's, as long as the funds that are paying for those charters are in fact passing through the conduit of local school districts, here is what inevitably will happen. The original founders who charter the school are full of fire and insight and they're not interested in the slightest in, 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 in going home at three o'clock. I mean, they'll do what the job takes and the school works fine and they draw the parents in. The minute they're gone, and I'll tell you, in five years, half they've just moved on to different places in their life. Who inherits the charter? But the school district inherits it, and now it becomes one of two things. It either becomes a dumping ground for all the problems in the district, and the district doesn't concern itself with the place at all. District 3 had such a place called Lincoln Academy when I was teaching down on 61st Street. It was a dumping ground for all the behavior problems. In the dis I loved it down there because it turned out the only reason they were behavior problems is that they, you know, they were locked up in these, in these school traps. But nevertheless, so that's one use the charters... Uh, evolve into. The other use is even worse, in my opinion. They're a desperate attempt to create elite enclaves in the common school district. They end up getting, as PS87 ends up getting, lots of extra money. Let me tell you something about IS44 and PS87, since you live in this district. My wife and I 
alone with no help and with the opposition of the of the political clubs in this district and the school district started the IS44 market it took about a year and a half of politicking and gouging and trading her vote on the school board and we got it up and running and what we predicted i still have the uh, business plan for the thing i wrote what i predicted was that it the thing was going to end up netting three or four hundred thousand dollars a year couldn't help not because it was free real estate in the hottest part of the west side so we had a, a, a lot of plans to draw all the schools in the district into it, to, to, to manage it, to use kids from all the schools as whatever part-time help you needed so they could get a little bit of pocket money, and to distribute the IS-44 market's income to all the schools of the district. All the revenue for years, I don't know how it's divided now, but I'd be very surprised if it's divided among all the schools of the district. All the revenue was preempted by IS-44 and the elementary school across the street because the most politically savvy parents were able to turn the thing into a private corporation. I don't still don't know how, 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 how that was done, so that the books couldn't be audited, etc., etc., uh, we'll, we'll have another meeting someday in another place about that. Uh, so that, I'm afraid, as long as the funds for charter schools aren't independently uh, ushered in but have to pass through these, I can't see any other possibility. Yes, sir, in back. What uh, do, you, do you see as being the future of uh, public school teachers here in the city in terms of um, the reform movement and recertification? Okay, this is a, an immense burden on an old man's mind to keep two questions, but I'll, if I don't remember the second one, you'll, you'll tell it to me. Uh, in, in, in tracking uh, the uh, development of schooling in the United States, which I spent about five years doing, and if I say five years, I mean seven days a week, about 12 hours a day. I didn't do anything else. I kept running across a phenomenon that occurred beginning in the 1880s, and it was largely ended by the First World War. And that phenomenon was the rise of elite private boarding schools all over the country that hadn't existed before. There were maybe half a dozen Exeter had and Andover had, but not many others had. Suddenly in the 1880s, with all the immigration pouring into the country, you know, from Italy and I guess later on from Russia, from Germany, from Ireland, with all this immigration coming in, uh, the American elites decided to reserve the breeding stock in a set of private boarding schools. As a matter of fact, there are about 280 that matter in the United States, and they're all quite small. Exeter is like a bus station with a thousand kids compared to Groton. Exeter would be in the large end of the range, and Groton would actually not even be on the small end of the range. They're about the middle of the range. So there are 275 
of these places, uh, by the way, uh, 13 or 14 percent of all the directors of American corporations went to one or another of these 275 schools. So I began to look into the internal dynamics of these schools on what I think is a common sense supposition. If these people know everything and want the best for their children, then would the diet, would the menu that they offered through these schools be duplicatable without a huge amount of money? And it's probably the part of uh, that large book that I'm proudest of. Everything that these schools aim to do don't cost anything at all. That isn't to say that the tuition there isn't high and they don't have lavish grounds. But what they seek to produce doesn't cost anything at all. So that it could be, in fact, the universal property of everybody if you you felt uh, on that wavelength. Uh, As I went from school to school to look, actually, I think you'll find this interesting. One of the reasons I began to do this was that, oh, say 20 years ago, there began to be opportunities for poor kids uh, uh, from welfare families to go to these schools. Not many of them, but a few each year. And I had to work out a way that some of those kids taken would be my kids. So, I mean, I was running around talking to the admissions director at Princeton who told me something that's worth the price of you coming tonight. He said the most important part on a resume that the kid sends in, you know, is is the hobbies. I said, but nobody, that's not important at all. Of course it is, he said. It's the only time that most kids have to dispense without someone else telling them how to do it. So it's a total map of how well balanced the kid is. The kid should have, let me see if I can recall this for you. The kid should have a physical hobby, a social hobby, an intellectual hobby, like chess, dancing, uh, and swimming, you know. And when we see that fan, we know something important. We know that person who's not going to give us any money at all has a chance to in later life be either rich or famous. If he's rich, he'll leave money to Princeton. If he's famous, it's like walking around with a billboard saying, I went, like Bill Bradley, I went to Princeton. <laughs> he said, so we don't just toss these things out, you know, out of the goodness of our heart. There, Well, that was just wonderful information. I brought that back, you know, and the kids and I sat around, and we worked out a strategy that works so well I'm telling you, pass it around. Of course, if you pass it around too far, it won't work any longer. You send for the catalog of the elite school. It could be a college, too. You send for the catalog, and you don't read the catalog. What you do is you look at the photographs they've selected. Those photographs will tell you how you're supposed to appear at your interview, whether casual or formal. You know, they'll tell you what's valued by that particular uh, little mini-culture. And if you can give off, incidentally, signals that you fit, even though your parents are on welfare, you are already in the finals for, for being selected. It's just grand. Uh, I remember one catalog we got, 
there were some jokes in the catalog. I said, I've never seen anything like this before. But mind you, a whole class of 30 would be sitting around in a circle with all these catalogs passing them back and forth, you know, and, and analyzing them and then trying to get a profile of the school. And then we would, we, we would read the pages where the mission, the, the pages that you never read are the pages we would read with a fine tooth comb over and over again, the mission statement. If you read Groton's mission statement, it would tell you that, but in generalized language, that religious piety is at the center of the curriculum. Now, you, you might say cynically, but Groton produces presidents like Roosevelt, like both Roosevelt's, in fact. Uh, and and they, I mean, religious piety, my foot, no. They not only actually believe that, but you must dress for morning chapel at Groton, you must dress for evening chapel. Did anyone here go to Groton? You must dress for evening chapel at Groton. You must stand at your plate at lunch while some sort of invocation or prayer is offered, and they take it quite seriously. Uh, now, if it's good enough for the richest people in the country, it ought to be good enough for IS-44 where I worked. For for all those years. Anyway, I, let me know. I get I ramble. Yes, ma'am. What happens is the country doesn't hear you. That's ask okay. Your question. It's really okay. But then I answer any question I want to answer. <laughs> Which you may do anyway. <laughs> um, there are so many questions that I could ask, but there are a couple of things to come to mind. Uh, my son has experienced both very traditional rigorous so-called gifted programs as well as very progressive programs where authentic assessment and no testing whatsoever is really the way they would like to uh, go if they were allowed to by the state. It seems to me that there are flaws in both. There are ironies, there, there are uh, contradictions, and it is incredibly frustrating to know who to align with and how to possibly support any particular reform. I'm very involved right now in fighting a mathematics reform that is supposedly uh, leading to the democratization of mathematics. It's, it's to move away from the horrible standardized testing and elite and tracking and all of that. And yet what has happened with this particular effort, and it's similar to problems in, in progressive education in general, is that that the, there is a there is a lack of content and rigor that ends up being the result of this wonderful attempt to engage and involve and celebrate the individual spirit and individual path that to expedite that wonderful ideal seems to be almost impossible and certainly impossible in this kind of warehouse uh, environment that, that you were describing throughout your presentation could What's everybody hear the uh the, the presentation here, uh, we're, we're posed inside schooling at its best with false dichotomies uh, in reading whole word worth, uh, versus phonics is, is quite a false dichotomy. It's so easy to master the alphabet code that before I went to first grade and my parents were working class parents and they didn't have any particular uh, addiction to education, I read fluently when I arrived at first grade, but so did 
because they taught me the alphabet code, and it was painless, and it, it, it happened in the course of having my mother read to me with her finger. And yet, this has been, for at least ten years, the subject of titanic battles back and forth. Uh, if you look at the way schools administer an alphabet code program or a so-called whole language where you bathe in literature program, they're both so deeply flawed, so clearly tied to some form of standardized assessment that they don't represent either point of view. And the truth is that both points of view were historically always uh, melded. Uh, they, they, they were hybridized. You learn to read the code first because it only takes about 10 days and then you can read everything. You can, inf I've seen girls from uh, uh, the poor sections uptown just put pick Moby Dick off the shelf and read it flawlessly. Now, do they understand it? No, but they can read it. And you say, well, then what's the, what have they gained by being able to read it? I'll tell you what they've gained. They've gained freedom from that horrible humiliation that occurs beginning in first grade when you make a mistake. And, in, well, in my case, the prettiest girl in the class just sneers at you. You don't recover from that for weeks. You know, if you make four or five mistakes, you know, you're, you're shut off from uh, concourse with, uh, <coughs> with the kids who've humiliated you. Now, once you, in fact, can decode, which is pathetically simple to teach... You, in fact, realize that you recognize an awful lot of words from their sound, that you knew the words. You just didn't know their, uh, uh, their, their printed form. Uh, none of these things are ever discussed. Uh, you're talking about a math program. I don't know whether you're talking about what's called rainforest algebra. Oh, I have to tell the people about uh, up to uh, I talk about PS 87's Rainforest Algebra program in that large book over there, and and I didn't I didn't investigate it myself. Uh, Saul Stern, who's the uh, I think he's a book editor of uh, the City Record, some big time publication for insiders, uh, sent his kid to PS 87, and he said. It wasn't until page 112 of the algebra book that there was an algebra pro problem. And he said in the whole book, there were only two algebra problems. One was about the Dogon tribe in, in uh, uh, I think, uh, eastern Africa. And, and the other was about the Arawak Indians in, in uh, Puerto Rico. And both were selling a political take. And now the truth is, the political take seemed fine to me, but didn't seem fine to me to sell it to an algebra book that didn't have any algebra problems. <laughs> the theory is that that people can. Uh, for, let's let me take the phonics thing because that's more uh, generally known. The theory is, and the theory is correct, that in a totally pressure-free environment, people can induce the few simple rules of pronunciation for themselves. It takes a good bit longer, but it doesn't take forever, and it happens. 
But schools are hothouse environments, including the nicest kindergarten you ever were in. Behind the scenes, one kid is ramming a sharpened pencil into the other kid's kidney. <laughs> Somebody's making fun of somebody else's mother. You know, and they're going to get a flower pot on their head after school. Uh, now, I, I seem to, I, I, I'm really not in, in any way uh, uh, obsessed with my bad experiences with girls in school. But, but, but you know, when, when, when somebody who, who you're interested in just cuts you dead, you don't care what the teacher's saying or anything. I mean, you're just bereft of, of any hope, and it doesn't go away. And having your mother say it'll go away makes it worse. <laughs> but this happens all the time. Why should we assume that people forced into a classroom by compulsion would then cede their attention to whatever the stranger in front of the class? I mean, that's the craziest notion I've ever heard of. If they were there by choice... Let me guarantee you that kids, kids who I've been told have no attention span at all, uh, I would see two, three hours uh, trying to master uh, the tricks of uh, comic book, cartoon art, silently, laboriously doing that. And I'd go over to the kid, I'm thinking of one now, who was down on the school records as an illiterate, and I'd say... You know, I mean, all the comic books in the world are printed here, right here in New York. So what are you wasting your time in school for? I said, why don't you get an apprenticeship with a comic book artist? And he said, you know, that's a ball you can't do that. I said, I happen to know that the woman who does Daredevil is in the International Relations School up at Columbia taking a Ph.D. And I will loan you $15 to intercept her when she goes to get a pizza at the V&T Pizzeria on 112th Street, buy the pizza. I want the money back, and I want interest on the money, kid. But you sit there and say, offer a quid pro quo. Say, I'll be your gopher if you give me some lessons in this. His name was Jamal Watson, and her name was Annie Nocenti. And I could hug them both in the air in front of you. Jamal not only got a year-long apprenticeship with a top-flight comic creator, but she helped him and a friend create a new character that Marvel Comics almost bought. The only reason they didn't buy it was some executives said, if word gets out that we've, you know, every kid in the United States will be on the train or the plane or a bike, you know, and we'll, our lives won't be uh, possible after that. Oh, my, I, I go on, I'm sorry. Uh, 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 the, the, the progressive approach, the, however humane it is, is despised by children. And when it ceases to be despised by children... You've lost these kids into a never-never land of unreality. And when they get out in a, a competitive society, they're going to be chopped to pieces. Kids love... What they don't like is to be forced against their will. But if they say they want to learn something, you hold the, their feet to the fire, and they will thank you for it over and over again. And years after you've 
worked with them, they'll come back and say, that's what did it for me. I remember, I'm going to mention a name that maybe some people in this room know. I had a boy, oh, this must be 35 years ago uh, at IS-44. His name was Larry Engelstein, and Larry was one of those kids that are despised by teachers because he not only thinks he knows everything, but indeed because he comes from a sophisticated, globe-trotting family, he knows most everything. So Engelstein was dominating the classroom with his hand and showing off. And I took him aside. I threw him up against the wall by the auditorium over there, and I said, listen, I said, I don't want to see your hand up in my class ever again. You know and I know <laughs> that you're wasting your time in there. But what you're doing, what you're doing is stealing the time the Shire kids have to learn how to speak in front of a group. You're not impressing me. You're intimidating them, and you're boring yourself out of your mind. I said, you come up with something really difficult that's going to test you to do, and I'll see to it that you can do it even if it involves you never coming to school again. <laughs> what about the other subjects, he said. I said, look, I'm your homeroom teacher, and the report card passes through my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't be saying this on... Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Larry came back oh, ten years later. I believe he was... Uh, a lawyer. He was a really one of these fine young men. You, you, you know, you just feel just great talking to. And he said, it changed my life. Everything up to that point had been easy and a giveaway for me. And he said, I had contempt for school. I had contempt for my own parents. I contempt for everything. Uh, he said, but that that's what made the difference. So kids don't want to be treated nice. They don't want to go they don't want to go on volunteer assignments where they work for 30 minutes and then they're given a plate of milk and cookies, patted on the head, and sent home. You get a kid in a volunteer program, the kid shows up when the paid employees show up, and the kid goes home at 5 o'clock at night. And the first complaint, you take the kid out and you abuse the kid. Let me tell you, they not only love it, they don't abuse the privilege. I did that for 15 years on the west side of Manhattan, and by the time we concluded, I had reams of letters from uh, uh, from uh, St. Luke's Hospital, from uh, uh, Riverside Church that has all those community outreach programs, begging me for more children the next year because he's, they, I was told they, they do better work and more work than our paid, our professional staff does there. It got to the point after about three years of doing this, and I did it for 15 years, that I didn't have enough kids for the demands to have kids involved in the general society. And your homework tonight or tomorrow is to read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography about a world in which all ages mix together, in which Franklin the son of a candle maker from a family of 15 worked a 60-hour job at the age of 12 and then in his spare time after work put himself through a curriculum that would choke a Yale student today. Or how about Admiral Farragut 
in charge of a warship sailing from Peru to Boston in 1815 at the age of 12. In charge of the warship, not someone watching over his shoulder and said, pull that line or that lanyard. I don't know what a lanyard is, but I used to read those books. I mean, we have done a number on our young. Oh, yes. Thank you all very much. Thank you, John Taylor Gotti. Gatto? I wish it were Gotti. (laughs) (laughs) There are copies of a different kind of teacher to the front of the event space. We thank you all for joining us. You may come up and have your book signed. Thank you. John Gatto was a teacher in the New York City public schools for almost three decades. He was named New York Teacher of the Year three times and in 1991, New York State Teacher of the Year. He's the author of A Different Kind of Teacher, Solving the Crisis of American Schooling. It's published by Berkeley Hills Books. And for more information, visit their website at berkeleyhills.com. Forty-eight hours of non-fiction books on TV. You're watching Book TV on C-SPAN 2. Coming up, Alan Metcalf, author of How We Talk, and Joseph Pickett, editor of the American Heritage Dictionary, discuss language in America. Next week on Book TV, an Encore Book Notes interview with Patrick Tyler on the political changes in China during the last 50 years. Then Public Lives with Ian Kershaw on Hitler's rise to power. And later History on Book TV with Michael Beschloss and stories from the American Heritage Illustrated History of the Presidents. Next Sunday.